1 Samuel 3. We're going to cover the entire chapter today uh, with how slow we've been through 1 Samuel thus far. Uh, it may be a bit surprising, but, but it begins to get more narrative-ish, and so we should be able to pick up a little bit more. So 1 Samuel 3, the question we're asking this morning is this, are you listening? Are you listening? You know, communication between God and man has always been, we might say, a difficult subject to consider. We talk about uh, talking to God, and of course we do that through prayer, but then we, we also reference the idea of God speaking to us, God telling us things about hearing God. But in our circles, we typically don't use this term, we might say, in its literal sense. When we say that God tells us to do something or that God told us something, we are not saying that we audibly heard the voice of God expressly telling us something, but rather that we received some degree of spiritual conviction concerning a certain topic or a certain question that we perceive to be impressed upon us by God and His Holy Spirit, and specifically through His Holy Spirit. In fact, we would, we would challenge the claim, would we not, that God in any regular fashion audibly speaks to men today, as the scriptures declare with little ambiguity that Jesus Christ was and indeed is the final revelation of God to man, manifest in his first incarnation and finally through his chosen and divinely appointed apostles. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the Bible tells us God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath made, excuse me, who he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. We learn in these two verses that God has spoken to us in these last days directly through his Son, Jesus Christ. The clear statement there is that God is no longer speaking through prophets or through apostles, but rather that all communication from God to man came through Jesus Christ and his appointed apostles in times past. We see this play out very clearly in the New Testament. Jesus lived 33 years upon this earth as the word of God incarnate. After his death and subsequent resurrection, he spent, give or take, about 45 days teaching his disciples what they were to do. He ascended into heaven. The disciples were to wait for the Holy Spirit to be given to them. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to them. And then God would appear in various times in visions to Peter. He appeared physically to Saul but each time with the intent that Jesus Christ himself would give these appointed apostles the authority necessary to lay the foundation for everything that the church would eventually need and teach. And so the Holy Scriptures is a collection of the writings of God's prophets and apostles appointed by God to tell us what God's will is, and the apostles specifically in the New Testament appointed to teach us Christ's teachings. And so we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes this, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, speaking of you who are part of, of the church, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so if we were thinking of a building, the cornerstone is that stone that is cut perfectly in order to get all of the other stones in place. Jesus Christ is that cornerstone. The apostles and prophets then built, became the foundation of the church. And then the church was subsequently built on top of that foundation. What does that mean? Well, that means that the apostles and prophets are at the bottom. They were then, not now. We are the church. We are the building. We are what is being built. But what we're built upon is that which was given to us by the apostles and prophets by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the foundation, the apostles and prophets. No more apostolic authority today. No more prophetic revelation today. That's been laid. The foundation has been laid. Now we're building the house. To this end, Every communication today between God and man is by necessity rooted in God's revealed word. God communicates to us through his word. And then he applies his word to our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which indwells you at the moment of salvation. So when we say that God speaks to us, we mean that God has impressed upon our hearts through his Holy Spirit, convicted us, directed us through his Holy Spirit into some application of biblical principles to our situation. Let me illustrate. We read God's Word and the Scriptures tell us, Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against Thee. So if we're not going to sin against God, we need to hide His Word in our hearts. Now through abiding in Christ, through prayer, through meditation, the Holy Spirit impresses upon our hearts that if we're going to hide God's Word in our heart, then we really need to know God's Word. And if we need to know God's Word, then we need to start reading our Bibles every day and we need to be memorizing the Bible. And so we say, God told me that I need to read the Bible every day. God told me that I need to be memorizing the Scriptures. Now, you did not hear an audible voice from God saying, read the Bible every day. Nor do we see in Scripture anything that explicitly demands that. There's lots and lots of, of principle and example that shows us that meeting with the Lord every day is very good. But no explicit command. And so, we would say God told me to do that. No audible voice simply recognizing the conviction of the Holy Spirit in applying the Word of God. We read in God's Word that our hands ought to be open to the poor, that we should give to those in need. Now, through abiding in Christ, through prayer, through med meditation on the Word of God, the Holy Spirit lays a person or a family upon your heart. And so you give to them and they say, why? And you say, well, because God wants me to. Because God told me that I need to give to you. Because God laid it upon my heart to do so. We didn't hear an audible voice, but the Holy Spirit distinctly directed us to do it. This is our understanding of God speaking to us. It is a communication deeply rooted in the known truths of God's Word and personally applied to each of our hearts by the indwelling Holy Spirit as we abide in Christ. We can't really quantify it because there is an element of subjectivity to it. The, the Word of God is important. Counsel is important. Prayer is important. But then there is a subjective element of conviction in our hearts. But we certainly can't deny it either, can we? We certainly cannot deny that it happens because we who have the indwelling Holy Spirit know experientially and definitively 
what it is to have God communicate to us in this manner. He tells us, don't do that. He tells us, yes, do that. He tells us, don't go there. He tells us, yes, go there. He tells us, don't spend money on that. He says, yes, you should spend money on that. We have all who have uh, received Jesus Christ as our Savior and and dwelling Holy Spirit, if we've been listening to any degree, you've experienced that. You've, You've felt that conviction. You, you've been directed one way or another. And so it is God's design that we would live in a continual a place of abiding in Christ and thus be in constant communication with God through His Spirit. We'll come back to this at the end. But we're going to jump into 1 Samuel 3 now and walk through it together, perhaps a little faster than usual. I invite you, if you want to take a little more time uh, to be thorough uh, with the actual text itself to take some time this afternoon and read through it as we're going to give it a more of a narrative uh, degree of inspection today. See, because in the Old Testament, communication was very different between God and man than it is today. There was still prayer and there was still the Word of God, uh, the uh, parts of the Word of God at least, but communication was very different. The Holy Spirit of God had not been given to men to indwell them. Now, the Holy Spirit of God would fill men for a purpose, but it did not indwell men into salvation like it did after Pentecost. Jesus had not yet come. He had not sent the Comforter. God was still speaking to his people in the Old Testament and all the way through the Gospels, through prophets. And yet, in 1 Samuel... Chapter 3, we see, and really all of 1 Samuel, but we see it introduced here in chapter 3, we find an interesting circumstance. Verse 1 tells us that the child Samuel was ministering unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days, that there was no open vision, that for many years God had not regularly spoken to the people of Israel through a prophet, and for a society that did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling. For a society that did not have that capacity, that did not have the completed Word of God as we do today, to not have a prophet among them would have been deeply troubling. To not have somebody with access to the Word of God in, in that manner would have been very troubling. Prophecy was an essential condition of the spiritual life of Israel in much the same way that the Bible is an essential condition of spiritual life today. But while God had spoken here and there to men through uh, the time of the judges and such, there really had not been a consistent prophet in Israel since the days of Joshua and before that Moses. In the days of Moses and Joshua, when the people had any need, they would go to the man of God and the man of God would speak God's will and Israel knew the direction to go. But There had been no open vision like that in Israel for many years. And as we keep walking through in verse 2, we find ourselves in a time when Eli is getting very old. We don't know how long after the man of God came and, and told Eli of his destruction and doom. Remember, we talked about that a little bit last week. We don't know how much longer, how much later in history we are in 1 Samuel 3, but presumably it had, it had probably been a number of years. It had probably been a number of years, enough time for Eli to get very old and for his eyes to completely go bad and for him to stop functioning in the high priestly capacity entirely. 
So Eli, according to verse 2, is now an old man. He didn't move very much. His eyes, as we mentioned, had weakened to the point where he was unable to see well. And naturally, this means his sons had completely taken over the high priest duties. His sons were now uh, likely in complete control. And it's, it's possible at this point that even his grandson, Ahitub, uh, that would be Phineas's eldest son, uh, had been serving in a priestly capacity as well, possibly. And in verse 3, we find ourselves in the setting of the night. The stillness of late night just before morning would break. It says, Ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark was, Samuel was laid down to sleep. Now the lamp of the tabernacle, according to Leviticus chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, was never supposed to go out. However, what, what that would mean, would at the end of the night, right before morning, traditionally in Jewish history, we learn that it was their pra- practice to extinguish the lamps and prepare them for the next day. But what they would do is they would take the fire of God from the lamps and they would put it on another candle. And then they would extinguish the lamps so that they could prepare them for the next day. And then they would relight them with the same fire so that the fire was always the same fire. And if history bears record all the way until um, the time of the destruction of the first temple, the fire was the same fire that the Lord himself lit the first time the tabernacle was christened. So the, the, the Lord himself, fire came from heaven and lit the fire of God. And then it was that fire with which they lit the candlesticks. And then uh, presumably that fire never, ever went out. Um, even though they would extinguish the lamps themselves, the fire, they would transfer the fire so that it would never go out. This was the fire that the Lord had lit. And so we find ourselves at the time just before sunrise, the time... Um, where, of course, everyone would have been asleep before the lamps were extinguished. And Samuel, the scriptures tell us, is awakened by a voice. He hears a voice calling his name. Now, we as readers, this is one of the benefits of being the reader, we as readers know that this is the voice of the Lord, Jehovah God. In our King James Bibles, whenever we see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that the word behind it is what, what we call Jehovah, what the Jews would call uh, the unspeakable name or uh, in theological terms, the Tetragrammaton. Um, the Tetragrammaton. And so this is that unspeakable name, Jehovah God. And so we know that Jehovah is speaking. Samuel, however, did not have the benefit of reading it in a book. So he hears the voice and immediately he answers, here am I. And he goes to Eli, thinking that Eli had called him and was in need of some assistance. He runs to Eli to make himself available, probably waking Eli up. And Eli says, son, I didn't need you. I didn't call you. I'm fine. You go on back to bed. So Samuel goes and he lies down again. Verse 6 tells us that this happens a second time. Samuel hears his name. It's the voice of the Lord. He thinks it's Eli. He runs to Eli and he says, here am I. And Samuel answers, or excuse me, Eli answers in the same fashion. I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Now, verse 7 tells us what's going on here a little bit more. Samuel did not know the Lord, nor had any knowledge of that um, which God was doing, any knowledge with which to recognize the voice of the Lord. This is not to say that Samuel didn't know who Jehovah was or even have a deep compulsion to serve the Lord. In fact, we recall in verse 1, which we just looked at not uh, a few moments ago, 
The text tells us that Samuel ministered be unto the Lord before Eli. So, so Samuel even ministered unto the Lord, and he knew he was ministering unto the Lord. He, his parents were good and devout. They would have taught him of the Lord as well. But the implication of the text is that Samuel had no reference point with which to understand that the Lord would, or much less want to, communicate with him personally. Samuel had no understanding of the prophetic office, for there was no open vision in that day. Perhaps Samuel had heard stories of the men of, like Moses and Joshua and how God spoke through them, but he had no reference point with which to link what had happened to the present day. And so each time God called, Samuel was seeking to reconcile the circumstances by assuming that Eli had been the one that called him. In verse 8, we see the third time that this happens. The Lord calls Samuel. Samuel arises, goes to Eli and says, Here am I, for thou didst call me. I know you called me. And verse 8 tells us that Eli perceives at this point that it is the Lord who was calling the child. Now imagine the significance of that moment for Eli. Eli was the high priest of a nation deeply dependent upon prophetic guidance and revelation. While there had been moments of illumination in the past hundred plus years, as a whole, the nation had largely been bereft of any significant prophetic guidance. Now Eli perceives that the Lord is indeed speaking to them through Samuel. And Eli is very, very eager to find out what God has to say. So Eli instructs Samuel in verse 9. And he tells him to go and to lie back down. And when the, he hears the voice again, to say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. He says, it's the Lord speaking to you. Answer in this way and then listen. Listen, Samuel. In doing so, Samuel would acknowledge his understanding of the divine source of communication and make himself available to receive the message that God delivered unto him. So Samuel obeys. He goes back to his own place and in verse 10 we see the fourth call. Things go very differently this time. The Lord comes, stands, and calls as at other times. Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel responds, Speak, for thy servant heareth. Now, Samuel, you'll notice, did not add the Lord. Eli said, say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Samuel didn't add the Lord in there. Is there any significance to that? Um, perhaps. Perhaps not. I don't really know if there's a significance to that. Maybe Samuel was nervous and intimidated and uh, was not feeling comfortable using this covenant name of the Lord. This name was, uh, as I mentioned in Jewish culture, the unspeakable name. Maybe they weren't comfortable speaking it. Maybe it was just in, in the moment, uh, here to the moment, he, he just said, said what he said and he forgot to say Lord. Maybe um, Samuel was skeptical. Maybe he didn't know. He says, yeah, Eli, you say it's the Lord. I don't know who it is, but it's not you. You told me to say this, so I'll say it. We don't really know. Either way, however, he responds to the voice and the voice now is ready to give him the message. And we see that message beginning in verse 11. The Lord does not give a long process of introducing himself to Samuel as perhaps he did with Moses 
with Moses. He was in the burning bush and he told Moses to take off his shoes for he was on holy ground. And, and he goes through the process of saying, I am the God of thy fathers and all of that. Here we don't see any of that. God just immediately begins speaking to Samuel and he begins to reveal to Samuel the fate of the nation for the nation had deeply rebelled against him. The people were not walking in accordance to God's word and God was announcing judgment. This judgment would be very severe, God says. So severe, in fact, that he uses this expression, which we find three times in Scripture, that those who hear of God's judgment, that their ears would tingle. That their ears would tingle. I don't know that I've ever had a circumstance where my ears have tingled per se, but um, from time to time when I'm preaching or when I think about some element of, of God and who He is, my spine tingles. You've had that happen before, right? Where you think of something exciting or, or you think of something that is just kind of beyond you and you get that tingle down your spine. We can't quite explain how that works or why that works, but it, but it happens. But God says here that their ears would tingle. And what that is intended to implicate is that as they hear this, that, that the hearing of judgment is so heavy and so awful that, that it literally will have a bodily effect upon them. And I mentioned this is one of three instances where this, this idea of their ears tingling is used. It's used here in 1 Samuel 3.11. The other two times it's used, once in 2 Kings 21 verse 12, and then also in Jeremiah 19.3. And in both of those instances, the ear tingling event that God is speaking of is the destruction of Jerusalem, the captivity. The captivity that took place um, 605 B.C. and then really the, the destruction of Jerusalem in 687, excuse me, 587 B.C. That is the frame of reference. And I personally believe that this passage in 1 Samuel 3 is also speaking of that event. If we trace God's promise to its very end, we'll find that the end for the rebellious nation, the tremendous judgment that would be upon Israel for their rebellion, is really that event in 587 B.C. when Jerusalem is destroyed by Babylon. That is the ear-tingling event. So I believe 1 Samuel 3, 2 Kings 21, and Jeremiah 19, all three ear-tingling events are the same event. The destruction of Jerusalem which at this point is still hundreds and hundreds of years away. And God continues in verses 12 and 13. He tells Samuel that on that day, on the day when he will perform this dreaded judgment in Israel, this ear-tingling judgment in Israel, it would also be the day when all of the curses that God had promised to Eli and to his family would be fulfilled. God promises... He promised here to finish what he began. He says, when I begin, I will also make an end. The beginning of God's judgment upon the house of Eli would come very soon when Hophni and Phinehas are killed. But the end of God's judgment upon the house of Eli would not take place for some time. We learned last week about that, right? We learned that for the next several hundred years, Eli would still even have representatives in the priesthood. And it would be in the days of Solomon that, that Eli's family heritage would be kicked out of the priesthood as God promised they would. But even then, they're not killed. And so it seems very likely from the text 
that God is saying that Eli's final descendant, that, that his, his line, his family line would finally end at the same time that this terrible ear-tingling judgment came upon Israel. And if the ear-tingling judgment upon Israel is the destruction of Jerusalem, then it would be likely that Eli's family is finally completely wiped out, all of his lineage is wiped out in that judgment. A judgment with, which all the way back to 1 Samuel 3, God says will be brought upon Israel for their wickedness. Now, that God is telling Samuel all of this likely means that Samuel was not aware of the man of God who came and prophesied to Eli of Eli's judgment previously. God tells Samuel that all of the events that, that God has promised upon Eli will come to pass because his sons had profaned God's name and because Eli had sat idly by without disciplining them or without restraining them. We talked about that two weeks ago and the danger of honoring our children above God. And this is another instance of God referencing that sin. Well, naturally, Samuel is greatly troubled by this message that God has delivered to him. He lay in bed until morning, likely dreading the moment when he would have to go into Eli and Eli would ask him what God said. And as Samuel lay there, he perhaps got the first taste of what it means to be a messenger of God's Word. God's Word is given to man in love and faithfulness. God's Word is a message of hope. But it first and foremost tells us of our desperate need for God, our desperate wickedness and depravity. No one enjoys seeing themselves from God's perspective. The, the clearer we see ourselves from God's perspective, the worse we see ourselves. No one wants to hear the bad news of our own sin. But here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, even as we think about telling others in this age about their need for a Savior or telling Christians about the sin that they're engaged in, even as we think about how miserable it is to have to do that and how much people don't want to hear it, the good news is always right around the corner. But you have to go through the bad news to get to the good news. A person has to realize they're lost before they can realize that there is provision for salvation. A Christian has to realize that they're living in sin before the joy that comes from repentance and restoration can be found. Humility is always the pathway to exaltation. We've been learning that in Isaiah 57 this month, haven't we? In our memory work this month, that the path to exaltation before God always comes through the gate of humility. And prophets oftentimes didn't have the privilege of getting to that point of good news. They were, they were pretty well cut off at the pass when they told people the bad news. That's when the stones came out. That's when the prison sentences started, uh, when the bad news was heard. People get so busy rejecting the truth that they've sinned against God that they stop their ears to the promise that if they will repent, God will redeem them from their judgment. And for the first time in Samuel's life, but perhaps or certainly not the last, Samuel lay there contemplating the hard task of telling a man that he had offended God and that there would be consequences for it. Sure enough, 
Verses 16 and 17, that's what happens in the morning, just as we would expect. Eli calls Samuel. Samuel faithfully appears. Eli is urgent, deeply desiring to know what the Lord told to Samuel. So serious is Eli about knowing exactly what God said. There had been no open vision for so long. Eli was so thirsty to hear what God had to say, so interested that he literally put a curse on Samuel if he would not tell him. The Lord do so to you and more if you will not tell me. Whatever he said, possibly he knew it would be bad, possibly he didn't, probably he did, because he said, the Lord do so to you and more if you don't tell me everything that God said. Well, that would be pretty intimidating for a young man to hear. So he tells Eli. Verse 18 says, Samuel told him every wit, every bit. He hid nothing from him. Eli's response is one of reservation. Eli knows the Lord. Eli knows that God's will will be done. Eli understands the judgment that's upon him. And he understands now the judgment upon Israel. And he already knows the decree of God, already confirmed and simply takes this as a deeper confirmation of what God has already said. He says, it is the Lord, let him do what seemeth him good. He's not going to argue with the messenger. All throughout the Old Testament, we see men arguing with the prophets, rejecting the prophets. Eli knew better than to argue with the prophet. Don't kill the messenger, right? God's decree was God's decree. But something else happened on that day. Something far more important than simply the content of that message. On that day, Samuel had chosen to say, Speak for thy servant heareth. He chose on that day to listen to God. He chose on that day to be willing to be faithful to the message of God above his earthly loyalties. Samuel proved that God could trust him to speak the words of God into the ears of the people. And this set in motion an entirely new season in Israel's history. The idea being that, as was demanded of a prophet, Samuel was not going to let any words fall to the ground. And that's what we see here. That Samuel, it says, let none of his words fall to the ground. That Samuel spoke everything that God told him to spoke. He didn't go off in his own direction. He didn't pander the people with flowery words. He told others what God told him. Samuel's words were true. He was a man of integrity. He was well represented. Of, uh, well uh, represented. He well represented God. Excuse me. And as such, he also properly fulfilled the role of the prophet, which demanded one hundred percent accuracy. For if a man said, "Thus saith the Lord," and what he said to, would come to pass did not come to pass, the people were to stone him. On the contrary. The whole of Israel soon learned that Samuel was indeed a prophet of God. Dan is on the northernmost tip of Israel. Beersheba is on the southernmost tip of Israel. So from north to south, the entire nation knew Samuel to be a faithful messenger and a prophet of God. And so the relationship between God and his people began a new season. God again was appearing in Shiloh, the city where the tabernacle had been. Samuel spoke for God, telling the people what God's will was and helping and exhorting them to obey it. And it began because Samuel, as a young man, was willing to listen. And personally obey and faithfully tell. And those are the thoughts that become our application this morning.
Three questions that I would like us to consider as we close. When God speaks, number one, do you listen? Number two, what you know, what you hear, will you faithfully tell? And number three, what God says, what you hear, will you obey? Let's begin with our first question. When God speaks, do you listen? Now, let's be clear once again about what we're saying here. We mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that we're not talking about the audible voice of God that you hear as you go about your day. What we're talking about is the obvious conviction of the Holy Spirit that impresses upon you certain uh, directions as to the circumstances that you find yourself in. When we say this, we often equate conviction with feelings. We will say, I have peace about this decision. I don't have peace about that decision. The Lord led me to make this decision. But we aren't just talking about following feelings here. We're talking about weighing actions and decisions against the clear teachings of God's Word and then receiving noticeable and distinct impressions in your spirit through prayer, counsel, and meditation upon God's Word as to the direction in which you should go. The process, as we mentioned before, is somewhat subjective in that we don't hear an audible voice and that there isn't a big blinking neon sign that says, do this or do that. But it is also extremely safe and well-tested as each decision passes through the principles of God's Word and through careful prayer and through counsel when possible. Those of you who have made decisions in this manner know that it works. And that's really all I can say. The best thing I can give you is illustrations of how we've seen it in our own lives. There has never been a large decision to my life, uh, in my life to this date where if I have sought God faithfully and appropriately on it, I have not received absolute 100% obvious direction in the way that I should go. When my wife and I were deciding where to minister as a church, we had prayed and fasted for almost a year. I mean, we didn't fast for the whole year. But one weekend a month for, for, it had been 10 months at that point, one weekend a month and then praying regularly about where God would have us to go. And we were waiting and we were watching and I came across church and church and church. I had dozens of opportunities, uh, two opportunities that were very, very available, uh, other ones that were on kind of the, the outskirts. But when I went to the website of Legacy Baptist Church, I knew this was the direction. As I began to speak to Mike Grismore over email, I knew that this was the church. When we came up here and we candidated, I knew that this was the place. There was no question in my mind. There was no doubt in my heart. there's, There's nothing like it when you are seeking a direction and then it's just, you know. And, and, and it's not that, that we did it subjectively. It's not that we were just following our feelings. We had been praying. We had been fasting. We had been looking for God's will. We, of course, um, compared the church to our convictions and to the way the Lord led. And it, it was the same thing when I was praying for a spouse. It was, it was obvious that my wife was supposed to be my wife. I'd been praying for her for years, waiting for the one that God would have for me, and I knew. 
It was obvious. And it's the same thing with the house that we own today. We had been looking, waiting, praying for a house, and when this house came about, we knew this was what God wanted for us. And so it, it's, I, 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 can't, I can't give you any more than that except to say that, that you who have the Holy Spirit indwelling, if you've not experienced this to this point, then perhaps you're not listening. Because if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling and you are listening for the leading of the Holy Spirit, you will experience this. What, what I'm saying, you will know what I'm saying. And if you don't relate to it and you are a believer, then maybe you're not listening. Because if we listen, if we are listening with clean heart, clean hands, submitted to the direction that God is leading, being regularly in the Word of God, you will, metaphorically speaking, hear God clearly. One last thought before we leave this point. There's a fad in Christianity right now about listening to the still, small voice of God. That's all over the place today. The, the, the idea of the still, small voice of God. The analogy is taken from the account of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 where Elijah has just run from Jezebel after Mount Carmel and that great experience and he's discouraged. And God reveals Himself to Elijah. And the Scriptures tell us that at first a great wind passed by Elijah and it broke the rocks. It was so great. But God was not in the wind. And then there came an earthquake. It shook the earth. But God was not in the earthquake. And then fire came and consumed everything around Elijah. But God was not in the fire. And then a still, small voice. The voice of God. And this is a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of the patience and the care of our God in our times of discouragement and need. God was being so patient with Elijah. God was being so careful with Elijah. And God was, God was manifesting Himself to Elijah very gently in this time. And that is not a bad thing. But the concept has been hijacked to equate God's leading, God's voice, directly to your feelings. You watch pseudo-Christian movies or movies that have any sort of religious connotation, or you, you hear really that the shallow preaching or those shallow pseudo-Christian songs, and you'll oftentimes hear, at least recently, about this idea of a still, small voice. Listen to the voice inside you, they say, and follow it. Listen for that still, small voice inside of you. But the Spirit of God is not the only thing inside us, is it? If we're walking in fellowship with God, submitted to His Word, then indeed the impressions that we will get as we submit to the will of God are from God. But if we are not walking in fellowship with God and thus submitted to our flesh, then the impressions within our spirit will be flesh-driven. We will, rather than following God, be following our own wicked and deceitful hearts. So be careful with this idea of listening to and following the still, small voice inside of you. Without foundational reality that God always guides in complete agreement with His will, already revealed through the Word of God, Christians will be led to follow their hearts, their emotions, and perceive it as God. The idea, not that 
God is love, but that love is God. That if it's good for me, then it must be from God, which isn't true. And I just warn you of that because it's come up a lot. I've seen it quite a bit in the past six months to a year. This idea of listening to that little voice inside, um, which is fine as long as it's in its right context. But if it's in its wrong context, it can be a, a path of deceit. So number one, are you listening? Number two, what you know will you faithfully tell? We've already contemplated the kind of emotional and spiritual struggle that Samuel must have been going through for the remainder of that night, waiting uh, till day, knowing that Eli would ask him about what God said and that God's decree was one of judgment. This was but a small sample of the very unpleasant things that Samuel would have to tell the nation of Israel throughout his ministry. But that night, as Samuel lay there, it became clear to Samuel that he had a decision to make. And he made the right decision, which was that he was going to tell the people what God wanted him to say regardless of their reaction to it. God had given Samuel the privilege of knowing his word, of knowing his will. He saw this as a privilege, but he also saw the responsibility to tell, even when he knew that the message would be unpleasant. And as we grow in our relationship with God, God becomes more and more clear to us. We learn more about what God expects, about right and wrong, about listening to God, learning from His wisdom, growing in wisdom. But God does not grow you just to grow you. He grows you for the sake, not just of yourself, but of the church. Proverbs 27.17 says, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. God wants you to sharpen others with what God has shown to you. Hebrews 10.24 tells us, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. God wants you to be urging, provoking one another to do good. That as God teaches you what it is to serve Him, you teach others what it is to serve God. What you know, will you faithfully tell? Telling others what we know about God is not always enjoyable. Whether that's telling the unbeliever or even, and sometimes especially, other Christians. They don't want to hear it. But if you know the truth, shouldn't you try? Third and finally, what God says, do you obey I ask if you will tell that which you know. But let's get more personal for a moment. Do you obey that which you know? When God speaks, do you hear? It's a good question. But more importantly, when you do hear, do you obey? How many times have you been convicted over sin, known something is wrong, but disregarded? How many times have you deeply felt that you should tell someone the gospel? You, have you ever been there where you've been talking with someone and you just you know that you should share the gospel with this person. There's the conviction in your heart that's God speaking to you saying, share the gospel with this person and you don't do it. Do you respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Or does love for self or self-preservation or whatever it might be override obedience? When a missionary comes and God lays it upon your heart to give up a week's worth of morning coffees to give them a little extra 
Do you obey? When you hear of a sick brother or sister in Christ and God lays it upon your heart to make a meal for them, do you obey? When you're lying in bed at night and you can't sleep and somebody comes to your mind from the church, a need comes to your mind and you don't know why, but you know that God wants you to pray for them, do you obey? Little can you know why God prompts us the way He does. But we can be sure of one thing, that God doesn't waste it. And we can be sure of another thing as well, that whatever that prompting is, it will come to nothing if we don't obey it. For whatever reason, God wanted you to give that thing up to give more to that missionary. For whatever reason, God wanted you to just even hand that gospel tract to that person and say, hi, I'm a Christian. Would you read this? I think it could help you. I heard what you're going through. I know you're having a hard time. I think this can help you. For whatever reason, God wanted you to pray for that person at that very moment, which you may never even find out. God is prompting you to do something. Are you listening? And when you hear it, will you obey? See, it takes a process of learning to to learn to listen, to learn to see it. Maybe you never even thought before that when that person pops into your mind late at night, maybe God wants you to pray for them. Maybe that's a new thing to you. You're learning to listen. Maybe it's a new thing to you that when you feel that impression upon your heart to give to that person in need, maybe that's God speaking. Maybe, maybe this is you learning to listen. That's good. You need to learn to listen. But for some of you, 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 you've seen it before. You know when God's talking. For some of you, the struggle is not, is God talking? It's, do I, am I willing to do what God tell, is telling me? See, Samuel was a young man who learned to listen was willing to tell and was willing to obey. May God help us as God's people to do the same. To learn how to listen to God when He speaks. To be willing to tell others and certainly to be willing to obey. Let's pray together.